0: Well, this is a time when if we are not sensing the presence of the Lord, we should probably stop, have an altar service, pray, get ready where we can indeed receive His presence. We have in no doubt been in the presence already of the Lord. It has been especially a joy for me to uh, listen to our young people as they have helped us in worship and joined in the choir. My goodness, trying to get young people into a choir these days is like pulling teeth. So for them to be doing this uh, in a volunteer way and doing it gladly and uh, robustly, I just think we need to uh, let them know how much we appreciate them. I've just really enjoyed that. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this evening, and it's good that we have something dependable like His Word to consider. So I'd like for you to turn with me to a passage of Scripture that for most of us will not be new, but that's okay. There's nothing new under the sun, but it's still true, and we do well to hear from it on a regular basis. So it's Isaiah 6. You've heard this, I'm sure, preached I don't know how many times from I don't know how many sources. I've preached from this passage I don't know how many times. But I want you to know I've preached a different sermon every time. That's because it's inexhaustible. It's just vast. Its depth is immeasurable. So Isaiah 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And I'd like for you to stand, if you would please, since just a few verses, as we read from God's Word. In the year that King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven or atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send Me. You may be seated. A lot of scholars go back and forth as to when chapter 6 that we have just read actually occurred in the life of Isaiah. Well, none of us and none of them was there. So I'm just going to take it at face value that this happened not at the beginning, the very, very beginning of Isaiah's calling, but that it began at a time at least that overlapped with his service and certain kings of Judah. This text reminds us that there was a momentous event in Isaiah's life, and he refers to it. It often gets little or no consideration but in the inspired Word of God, it's verse number one. It's in this verse. We're going to pay a little bit of attention to that today, that God often uses at key moments in our lives, God often uses those moments, does not cause them. God is not a ruthless God, but God also doesn't waste any moments. He never wastes moments. And He knows that There are times when we're most contemplative, when we're most interested in our own spiritual inventory. God knows when we're most open to his prodding and his dealing with us. God knows stuff. Let's just agree with that tonight. God knows all kinds of stuff. He knows when you and I are most accessible and most reachable. He knows when it's good to get a hold of our hearts when we're ready for Him to deal with us, when we're most receptive. He knows those things. God never wastes a moment in our lives. He never does. If we will be sensitive, if we will be in tune with what He wants to do, God won't waste what happens in our lives. Now, prior to this, if we read the first five chapters of Isaiah, we would know something, that Judah had been wealthy, it had done well, they were increased with all kinds of goods and ease. But they were also allowing all kinds of spiritual idolatry to creep into their worship. They were diluted in their own devotion. And there's a part of that early five chapters where God says, I basically had it with you. Now, I don't think I ever, ever want to hear that from God. I don't want to hear God tell me, I've had enough of you. I don't ever want to hear from God, don't raise your hands and praise to me because I know what your hearts are like. That's what we find in the first five chapters of Isaiah. I don't, I don't ever want to be on the receiving end of God saying hypocrisy, and I'm tired of it. I'd rather you not show up. I'd rather you not come with all of your sacrifices because it's a farce. It's a lark. You're fooling yourselves. I know what you're up to. I'd rather you just not go through the motions. I don't ever want to hear that from God. The knower of hearts, I don't want him ever to say to me, Jonathan, you're just playing games. I don't ever want to hear that. So Isaiah had already prophesied these things from the Lord. And in that prophecy that precedes chapter 6, Isaiah also As he was inspired and ignited to do, he also declared that there were times coming. There were moments coming that were going to shake things up, literally and figuratively. The world would quake. Things would tremble. Now now hold on to that as we think of chapter six. So he was already aware God has reached a point where he's done with Judah and punishment is coming, judgment is coming, judgment is coming to the house of God. But he also promised, as we see often in Scripture, in the midst of bad news and in the midst of God saying, I've had it with you, there's also God saying, But I'm going to have a remnant. Remnant theology is a wonderful, wonderful, promising truth in Scripture. I'm not going to deal with all of you in the sense of you're all going to be dealt with in a harsh way or you're all going to be wiped out. I'm going to have a remnant. There will be a remnant who will stay true to me, they'll honor me, and I will bless them. So we have all of that in the first five chapters of Isaiah. So when we get to chapter 6, I want us to note the moments that often are used to define our lives. Moments that God uses. The first one that we come across that maybe we've just overlooked oftentimes is a grief moment. Now, I will have to say that it hasn't been hard for me in the last year to consider the issue of grief. I've officiated funerals of people in my congregation who have died of COVID. Most of us know someone, someone close to us, maybe even a relative, a loved one who passed away during COVID. Those are interesting moments when we go through them. I never, ever want to go through the loss of a life close to me with indifference. So there are a number of ways that God, at least in my own heart, takes those moments and uses those moments for what I need. First of all, those are always inventory moments for you and for me. We're still on this side of things. Our race hasn't concluded. And I always think, Lord, as I am sitting here or as I'm officiating in this setting, oh God, knowing this day is coming for me too, help me to stay true. Help me to finish well. I don't want to start well, but fumble and bumble around in the conclusion of my life ever bring disgrace to you or ever lose my soul i'm not panicked about that i'm not paranoid about that but i'm serious about it i do not want my life to come to an end that is a smudge on god's goodness or my record i want to be faithful to the end The grief that I'm talking about is what Isaiah mentions in verse 1. This isn't just some kind of a date marker that Isaiah is referring to. He's referring to something that I really believe has grieved him. Isaiah is a grievous figure. If we've read our Bibles, we know that he started well, he was a king at 16. Now, I love the youth who are here. I have great appreciation for them. There's not a one of them that I think I want to have as my king. And the reason for that is not because they're bad or in any way um, not what they ought to be at their age, but 16 scares me to death as a king. So I'm just going to go on record there. He became a king at 16. He started out well. Scripture reminds us that he did what was right in God's sight. He was also a military genius. Scripture records that he came up creatively with all different kinds of defensive military mechanisms as well as offensive maneuvering of armies to be proficient in battle and in war. He was a military genius. Scripture tells us that. Organizationally, he was remarkable as well. But I'll tell you what. Every time someone is gifted, every time someone is talented, You better keep those talents and those gifts in service to the living God who gave them. You better make sure you don't take credit for it. Better make sure you don't start thumping your chest saying, yeah, I'm all that. Because we're not. These are gifts. These are enablements. These are from God. The shame of Isaiah, the sadness of of Isaiah is that he took positions that disobeyed God and one of those that was so graphic was he went into the temple to burn incense which was the priest's job to do. He usurped his position, his pride got a hold of him and he arrogantly strutted in there and Azariah the priest with 80 others said you're not supposed to be doing this and he took the incense censer anyway and began to burn incense and immediately immediately leprosy broke out on his forehead. And he was a leper until he died. Wow. So I really believe, since the role of a prophet was often linked to helping and guiding and giving instruction to the king, I believe that this broke Isaiah's heart. I believe that when he considered Isaiah, and the fact that he had just died, he died all alone, he was a leper, he was kept away from his family, he had to be a recluse because of his condition, all because of God's judgment on his life. My. Isaiah was a good prophet. Those kinds of losses, those kinds of graphic images should break our hearts when someone started so well, had so much, but walked away from God, arrogantly vaulted and vaunted themselves to the point where they, th- they thought they were a law of themselves, how sad that Isaiah died a leper. Grief is one of those moments that can, without a question, get our attention. I shared with you in one of our services, the very abrupt death of my brother-in-law who died at age 61. And he and I were really closer than brothers and what that did to me and how that affected me. But um, about a month after that, I'm the youngest of five children. My sister Julie on Christmas Eve day was doing what a lot of us do, getting ready for family to come over, and she went out into her garage, into one of those garage attics, to get all of her Christmas gift bags. I told my wife as a result of this, who cares about Christmas gift bags? But she went into her attic, up into her attic. We don't know all the details, but she, who was very fit, she was a runner, she was in good health, she was a cardiac care care nurse, she fell somehow off of what would have been the flooring of that attic, fell through the drywall, head trauma that was terrible, and days later died, 63. Julie and I were very close, we're the closest in age, and it was just another horrific shock. And I remember sitting in Indianapolis at the church she attended in her funeral, you know, COVID, does, has done such strange things to us, especially affected moments of grief where we need one another so much. And we don't need masked faces, and we need hugs, we need embraces, we need that kind of contact because we're all grieving. We couldn't do that, and uh, everything was according to all of the COVID regulations but I remember a video being shown because Julie was a, an organ donor. She was kept alive until it was right for those organs to be harvested. And they took video of her being wheeled down the hall while all of her workmates, all of the nurses, all of the doctors at St. At, uh, Vincent Heart Center watched and paid tribute to Julie being moved down the hall, out of her room, down to where they would harvest her organs. Grief is a defining moment. It is a defining moment. I sat there and my wife intuitively knew she needed to hold. needed to hold my hand. Isaiah knew grief. We know grief, don't we? And if we live long enough, every one of us will encounter grief. It's one of those defining moments. I'm not sure what all happened here and I don't want to take too much of a speculative leap but I think there's some similarity here and there are some catalysts in the death of Isaiah that God uses also to get a hold of Isaiah. There are too many similarities I believe for this to be in any way chance. I believe this is providential. So keep in mind how Isaiah had grieved God and disobeyed God and received judgment from God and had become a leper the rest of his life, keep that in mind with what he did, where he was when he did it, and how that brought about the wrath of God. There's a moment of grief. There's a grief moment that begins this chapter. But thank God there's a God moment. There's a God moment. And it is a rich one. It's an, frankly, it's an indescribable one. It's another one of those times when you probably have to say, you just had to be there. If you weren't a part of this vision, you just had to be there. But it was a God moment. So what did Isaiah say? In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. They flew, these fiery angels flew in a majestic and just awe-bringing, awe-striking way. They didn't just present themselves, they also sang as a choir in the round singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled. There was quaking, there was shaking going on at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Do you get that? I believe with all of my heart that God used all of the images that would have come to Isaiah's mind about Uzziah, what he had done, how he had usurped, the role he had taken, the incense censer, which he had no right to touch. He was not one of the Levites. He was not a priest. But he had usurped in his arrogance, and the judgment and the wrath of God had come upon Uzziah. He became a leper. And he died that way. And now Isaiah is encountering a vision of not only the prophecy that has come before him. What did God say before this chapter? What did God say through Isaiah? I'm going to shake things up. There's going to be quaking. There's going to be trembling. I'm going to let them know I'm God. And I'm going to let them know I've had it with their nonsense. And now all of a sudden... God is on the scene. He's high and lofty and exalted. Smoke is filling the temple and things are a-shaken. I don't believe in any way that that's just happenstance. I believe that God is using imagery of a moment of grief to also get Isaiah prepared for a moment from God. A God moment. You know, when God shows up, I mean really shows up, when God shows up, I really believe that there is a balance that needs to be struck. There's a balance that needs to be had. I believe Isaiah's inspired imagery helps us here. There is... Worship, real, not fake, real worship. And there is an element of worship that is humbling. There is an element of worship that reminds us we're in the presence of the living God. I'm not sure what all Isaiah was going through. I'm not sure what all he was encountering but I believe it's possible that while he was also being compelled by the holiness and the awesomeness of God, I believe there was also a little bit of wholesome fear. I think we kind of need that. I think we've gotten a little too cozy at times with God. Let me just remind us, friends, He's God. He's the God that dealt with Isaiah. I wonder if Isaiah was wondering, Am I in trouble? Am I in trouble? I don't want judgment to fall on me like it fell on Isaiah. Boy, it's a stark moment. But it's also a compelling moment, and I believe without question, Isaiah is responding in a way that God wants him to respond. He's responding in a way that God is pleased with, but it is a shake-up moment even in Isaiah's life. This is not the first temple experience that Isaiah has had, but it's one that I'm sure he never forgot. Every time God shows up, Grace shows up too. So it's not just a grief moment and a God moment, but God does stuff. And He does things with us. That's why He shows up. God never comes idly. God never comes without an agenda. God never comes without a clear purpose. God will never convict us. God will never arrest us where we are. God will never come and talk sternly to us. He will never ever talk to us in a way that even physiologically gives us sweaty palms. He'll never do that unless He has the aim to change us and to do something significant in us. We should never ever, ever Run away from conviction. Conviction is a wonderful reminder that God is after you and me. It's a wonderful reminder He loves us. It's a wonderful reminder that He doesn't want want to leave us in our undone state. Aren't you thankful for that? Be concerned when you're not convicted. Be concerned when God doesn't show up. Be concerned when He doesn't talk to you. Be concerned when you don't sense His scrutiny because whom a father loves, He also disciplines, He chastens, and God does that faithfully. Get nervous if God doesn't talk to you. It's a grace moment. Isaiah responds in a way that is so significant. He's already prophesied about Judah and the people but you know one thing that I am struck by is that Isaiah doesn't just say yeah God those people they're a bunch of cruds I watch them every day I would burn them up too he doesn't do that Rather, he identifies with them. He says, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Whatever all of that means, he recognized, he confessed, he came to terms with, and didn't try to hide, his own uncleanness. And then he said, I live with people like this. I live with people who have unclean lips. And he says something very significantly. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I can't dodge it. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't blink my eyes and it's gone. I can't escape. This vision, this God moment has gotten a hold of me. Now, when he says, I'm undone, some Hebrew scholars help us there and give us the idea that he's saying, I cannot say a word. I can't speak a word. I am, as, as it were, mute. You know, there's a good point there. There. There's a time, I've already mentioned this, but there's a time when you just shouldn't say anything. If, for one thing, um, we ought to remain silent so we just don't bring more indictment on ourselves. Just keep, just keep quiet. I can't speak. He's also saying, I cannot in good conscience, with a clear conscience, And with full vigor, I cannot jump in and sing with the seraphim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I can't do that. I'm disqualified from that because of my uncleanness. I wonder what would happen in our churches if we had those moments when people said, Stop the music. I can't sing this song in good conscience. Pray for me that my uncleanness will be purged. Pray for me that my heart will be made clean. And then let's start singing again. What would happen in our churches if we had that kind of honesty? No, we just fake it. Oh, we have those glory moments. What did God just say? Don't raise your hands to me. When in your hearts you're not honoring me. So he did the best thing he could do. He kept his mouth shut. He was still. He was mute before God. What a grace moment, though. Things begin to move for his benefit. Things begin to come around because God is there. Things begin to gel as to what God has in mind. God doesn't want to burn up Isaiah, and God God doesn't want to give Isaiah leprosy. God doesn't want to rule him out. No, God has him there. God has him seeing this vision. It is a God moment and a grace moment for a specific purpose. Here's the purpose. Then. Boy, that's a a big, small word. Then. With all the preparation that Isaiah would have undergone, with all that God was able to get into his heart and into his mind, with all the things that God was already doing, with all the things that God had shown him, then. Then, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Your sin is forgiven. What a grace moment. What a grace moment. Grace is not God just saying, you're okay, you're okay. I've said you're okay. You're not, but you're okay. Don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to make anybody upset. No, God will call us out. God will diagnose us. God will not let us off the hook at all, and thanks be unto God. He will not leave us alone. He will not leave uncleanness untouched. He will not leave us alone. Because if we have our choice, we'll be damned if he does. He won't leave us alone. He won't. Now, we can reject him. We can can rebuff him. We can say no to him. But he will not leave us alone because he's after us ultimately for our good. He's after us as a holy God to make us holy, too. Oh, we ought to thank God for that. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah, conviction is unpleasant. But, you know, if it wasn't unpleasant, we'd never pay attention to it. Right? We'd never pay attention to what God is doing if we never, ever felt the pain of conviction. It's a grace moment. It's also a moment, you know, we believe... in the the Wesleyan orbit and in a biblical orbit, we believe in assurance. We believe in the doctrine of assurance. We know whether or not the Spirit has done a work because the Spirit witnesses to us, witnesses to our spirit that we're a child of God or God has accomplished His objective. In that cleansing moment, look at this message of assurance. One of the seraphim not only did the work, provided the wherewithal for his purging, but he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Now some might say, I just don't think this happened at this point. You know what? God called me into the ministry. I grew up in a holiness home. I heard more holiness preaching than you could shake a stick at. I went to I don't know how many camps and to where I was just tired of camps. I don't mean that now. Love you dearly. But I got hauled to all kinds of things all the time, hearing all of this stuff, and it still was not real in my heart, even when I was called into the ministry and first went into the ministry. Now, I'm not saying that proudly. I'm just saying God had a a thick head in me to deal with. I just couldn't get some things. Maybe I just knew, I knew the lingo. I knew, in a sense, rationally what it was all about, but I didn't have the hard experience. So I was pastoring in my first church. I had also been attending Indiana Wesleyan University. We had to listen to a church growth guy, who talked about how if you're any kind of decent pastor, your church will go from, you know, a garage of three people and a dog to 2,000 in a week and a half if you do it right. And if you market it right, you know, you'll, you'll just do it. Well, I'll tell you what. I went back to a rural setting outside of the little town on a country road that no one could ever find to 13 acres of wooded, you know, forest, woods. You couldn't see the building. You really had to be lost or airlifted in to find that church. And I had just heard, again, three people and a dog, week and a half, good marketing strategy, 2,000. I was as deflated as I could possibly. didn't encourage me at all. I went into my little cubicle of a study, and I began to bemoan my circumstances. And I I began to tell God, you got this wrong. I'm too sharp to be wasted out here bunch of, uh, in, in, in this woods and with a bunch of farmers. No, no slam on farmers, but that's what I had. My mom said, "Now they're salt of the earth. Anyway, I'll leave that alone. They loved us so much that before freezer burn completely set in, they gave us their beef tongue and oxtail because they had a new half beef or full beef coming to fill their freezer. Bless their dear hearts. Um, May the Lord bless them and keep them. Beef tongue and oxtail. I never touched it. Never touched it. But we were about that hungry that I was considering it. I went back to that study and I bemoaned my situation. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll call my mother. My mother's name, Leona Grace Morgan. I thought, she loves me. She'll understand. So I called her up. I said, Mom, I want to tell you something. I said, this bunch, I just went down the list. This bunch, this situation, this circumstance, this location, all this, bugs, everything else. Everything I could think of. Oxtail. And I just complained and complained and complained. Mom was just absolutely dead silent. I knew Mom well enough, I thought, this is not good. This, this, does not, this does not bode well for me. And my mom was only four feet eleven. That's why I never played in the NBA. My, my, my mom was four feet eleven. But boy, I tell you what, she could pack a punch with her great biblical, biblical counsel. So after the long, very awkward pause, I said, Mom, aren't you gonna say anything? I wish I hadn't really asked that. I said, aren't you gonna say anything? She said, Jonathan, And in in a tone that it wasn't Jonathan, it was Jonathan you have not suffered unto blood yet oh man so I said to her, I I said this is how stupid, I should have at that point I should have become Isaiah and I should have kept my mouth shut but I said to Leona Grace, I said, do you always have to bring Jesus into this (laughs) now how stupid can how stupid can you get but that was just where I was at that point do you always have to bring Jesus into this she said yes I do young man I got off the phone with her and I thought oh man what have I done so I began to pray and I'll just abbreviate it and say this In that afternoon, in that little cubicle of of an office, in a pole building, in a woods, I came to the point where I said, God, I don't care if I live and pastor in obscurity the rest of my life. I just want to be clear with Jesus. I want to be good with Jesus. I want my heart to be clean. I want my motive to be right. I want to love the people that give me oxtail and beef tongue and mean it. You know, you can't fake that. God knows whether or not we mean it. I want that grace so that the uncleanness of my own ambition and my self-centered nature can be purged and cleansed a grace moment. I'm so thankful for grace moments. And I'll, I'll just close by giving this quickly. All of this, a grief moment, a God moment, a grace moment, led Isaiah for a go moment. Before he ever got the message, did you get this? Yes, he was already prophesying, but before he ever got the message from God... He simply responded full heartedly, wholeheartedly, to this question from the Lord. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. God will never waste a moment. There are defining moments. In our lives, maybe a grief moment. I hope and pray it is without question a marvelous history parting God moment. And if God shows up, grace will show up with him. It will be a grace moment. And then you won't stiffen your knees, you won't dig in your heels. You'll be ready for a go moment. And I want to say to us as a church, as the church gathered here, oh, how we need those who will go. Not just into the pastorate, not just to the mission field, but go into your workplace, go into your neighborhood, go into your family, and go wherever you possibly can go as emissaries for Jesus the Christ. We need a go moment perhaps as we've not had in a long time. Moments that define our lives. I don't know where you are and what this might be as a moment for you. My only request of you would be this. Don't waste the moment. Don't waste the moment. Let God do in this moment whatever he wants to do In your life. Will you commit to that? Will you promise that? I hope you will. I never regretted losing the battle that day in my study to both Leona Morgan and to God. Never regretted it. I lost that battle, but I won a lifetime of joy of walking with Him. Praise His name. Let's stand, please. Our Father, this is a moment. You've planned it, you've ordered it, you've orchestrated details. Those details have been who's here. You're here, we're here. It's also included what we've sung, what's been said. All of these are pieces of a moment. We don't believe we are here by chance. We believe we are here by divine decree. We believe we are here because you've ordered some things. So, Father, I would just pray this. Make the moment clear to us. Individually, collectively, make the moment clear to us. And help us to be glad when it's all said and done that we responded as we should in the moment you gave us. We ask it in Christ's name.